Serious TV Drama Podcast. I'm Scott, and joining me once again this week... Wait, is he the Lennon, or is he McCartney? Nah, skirt. He's Ringo, which makes me Yoko, and you the listeners... Well, you know, you're still you, but you're... You won having drinks with us at an auction. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> our co-host, my co our Everybody's co-host. It's Brian. Hey, Brian. Co-host for hire, all-time quarterback. Good evening. <laughs> Uh, I love how the I love how my introductions each week are getting more dopely convoluted. We are back this week for our HBO double feature of Succession and Perry Mason. Now, once again, if you don't watch both, hopefully you've checked the segment breakdown to know when either to start or stop and such. I love saying and such, and now I notice that at least one character on Succession says and such, which made me very happy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's the little things, you know. So speaking of which, let us get started with the latest episode of Succession, which was titled Rehearsal. Now, this episode covers the Roy's on the eve, and I believe it was the eve, of a couple notable events. Big one being the vote and sale of Waystar to Gojo, and specifically Lucas Matson, played with a certain laid-back yet still somehow intense Alexander Skarsgård, and the seemingly less important event in the eyes of all the Roys except maybe one, the wedding of Connor and Willa. But before we get to Connor, who I think may very well steal this episode... I think we need to continue that little concept of marriage in general, or more appropriately, the dissolution of one. So we're going to pick up again this week with the situation with Shiv and Tom. Now, Shiv has a completely astute belief from the get-go of this episode that Tom is essentially conflicting out all the potential divorce lawyer sharks in the metropolitan area of, you know, New York City, because you know, even though there's probably like 20,000 lawyers in New York, I really find it hard to believe, but whatever. Shiv knows Tom, despite his really unconvincing deflections, is clearly using her dad's playbook. And be it the concern of the actual split of monies post-divorce, or to simply stick another knife, or should we say a shiv, ha ha, in her dad's back. Come on. Their names are so precise. <laughs> Um, this clearly motivates her to reconnect with that Sandy Furness character, who was the daughter of, well, Sandy Furness, <laughs> the media giant who once tried to take over Waystar and has since had a seat on the Waystar board. Now, as we see in those opening few minutes via phone conversation and then uh, a meeting, Shiv indicates she's open to working with Sandy and, oh, yay, Stewie, we haven't seen him for a bit, to vote against the deal to hold out for more money from Matson. Now, last, I'll, I'll, I'll stop here by saying, if it delays and upsets her dad, but the, sa- but the sale still goes through, then okay, she gets more money, you know, which helps her cover the deal for Pierce and, and then some. But if it kills the sale, that also kind of kills her dad, <laughs> which would mean Shiv and her siblings would, you know, they would have to back out of their Pierce deal. But as we can see from the Roy's attitude and conversation at the beginning of this episode, while they are watching a PGN show... You start to wonder, are they really even all that interested in this? Or has this all been just to play keep away from their dad? 
I, I get the sense that uh, Roman's the only one that sees that this is personal and not business. And uh, several times in the episode, but certainly at the beginning, you know, he says, and to also maybe put this all to bed, like, like he kind of wants it over with, I think, because he wants to be a part of all of their lives. Uh, but I, I think for Shiv and Kendall, it's personal. Um, and, and I think that's why I was, you know, we'll get there later, but there's a turn that Kendall takes that, that I think goes away. You don't expect, uh, yeah. later in the episode, but that, that I think gives you a hint that it's more personal for him than business too. So I, I think it is that. And, and I, I was really, really, uh, intrigued by the idea that, uh, Logan, advised Tom or Tom sought the counsel of Logan and, and went out and ran the playbook to keep all the best divorce lawyers off Shiv's retainer. Right. Uh, because there might be 20,000 lawyers, but to handle a complicated divorce like that, there are a handful of lawyers in, in any given place. I mean, even here where I am, you know, the doctors at the hospital uh, that work here, all, there was a certain lawyer here years ago that they all kept on retainer so that their spouses couldn't go hire that lawyer in the event there was an impending divorce. So very, very realistic. And I thought that was a nice touch by the writers. Oh, absolutely. And, and yeah, and of course, you're absolutely right. I mean, I, I jokingly said there's 20,000 lawyers here, but, you know, only a select few are going to handle such major hope, high profile cases such as this where so much money is involved. And the only catch being in a place like New York, you're going to probably run into more of those because of just the, the per capita, you know, you know, ratio of millionaires, you know, that might be here compared to uh, other places. But it doesn't mean she can't go and get a lawyer from, from LA or Houston or, or wherever. And which is probably where I, I believe they're going to go. And hopefully it'll be some interesting casting for whoever that lawyer turns out to be because that's a part you could probably have a little bit of fun with. Also going, staying on that track just for a moment. It also, even though I, I, not only we agreed upon it, I think every viewer, you know, who watches agrees upon it. Okay. Tom is clearly going to be going after stuff here because you don't do, you're not doing that and hoping for it to be an, just a, a nice, easy, amicable divorce. Even though Tom, it's not that Tom doesn't come from money himself. But it ain't Roy money. And if Logan himself is doing any form of coaching here, which it seems pretty apparent, then that's that, that's a, that's an interesting dynamic I don't think I've ever seen before, that the father would be helping the person who married one, one of his children in, in a divorce proceeding rather than the other way around. That's a, it's, it's, if, the more you think about it, the more unique it is and the more screwed up that makes the Roys, quite frankly. Right. And it... And it- brings a uh, brings a crushing reality that it's about money more than anything. I right. mean, why else would you do that but for to protect your money um, and protect his interest? And really, he sees their divorce yeah, through the lens of himself. Right. It's money. And as they probably have already said, and they should say, when it's money, it's power. 
And that's what, between because him trying to cement his place there and Logan trying to maintain his place as well. And if he can undercut one of the people who are looking, you know, either be the Pierce deal or anything else, you play, you know, you can, you take that potential money away from them. That decreases whatever power they may, they may have over you, especially after what just happened in the previous episode where they, they actually flexed and, and at least temporarily won for a change. Now, meanwhile, Everyone is on high alert over at ATN as Greg is frantically reaching out to Tom to tell him that Logan is there, walking the floor. And I'll say that Greg peels off some of the episode's best lines as he describes how Logan is terrifyingly moseying around as he's wearing sunglasses. It's as if Santa was a hitman. And I will say right now, and I know a lot of I'm sure like every other podcast or article that's covered this series um, probably does a thing where they, you know, the most notable quotes from the episode. And if they don't, they should, because of all the shows I've watched over the last several years, there's probably not one that has many as many standout quotes as a show like Succession. Even the great Better Call Sauls. No offense to Mr. Gilligan and McGould, but oh my God, the lines they rip off on this are amazing. And the line that caught my heart, of, of two, one is going to come later, but here is, it's like Jaws, if everyone in Jaws worked for Jaws. Yeah, that's a great line. <laughs> it's such a great line. Now, and throughout the ATN um, sequence of events, there are really some great, really, I call them darkly comic bits that are sprinkled throughout those scenes. Most of them are actually connected to, I would call it an apparent audition tape. For Carrie, you know, Logan's mistress, right-hand woman, assistant, and apparently attack dog for anyone named Greg. Um, I, I, it was funny how much play, both literally and figuratively, that got throughout the episode. And you start to think about whether, whether there's, and what, what possible ramifications happens from little events that happen around that video. Yeah, it's, uh, it, it was like a running gag yeah. that that started funny and ended not funny um, because it, it grows more serious. The reaction she has to it and the where it where she leaves it. And I, I sort of had the feeling as I watched this episode and you can tell me what you think. Um, they positioned her as possibly a more formidable Mm-hmm. Uh, opponent than some of Logan's past people. I know the the character played by Holly Hunter was supposed to be a, a big deal, but um, but they've sort of shown the rise of this woman and her influence on Logan and how much um, she means to him. And they've intentionally had her start off being the subject of multiple sort of sexist jokes about what she does with him. Um, and, and when she leaves Greg, by the time she leaves Greg, um, you, you get the sense she's not stupid. She's not, um, you know, an empty head that's trying to audition for that, that that she might have more influence. They, they might be overplaying their hand. And if Greg and Tom aren't careful, they might be in trouble with her, too. I think she might be the wild card this season that we see something really unexpected happen. Um you know, if you wanted to really throw a Hail Mary, she could marry Logan and end up with the whole empire and everybody's on the outs if he changes his will before he dies, if if we go that route or whatever. But 
but the, the airtime and the storyline they've given her, I think, set her up as something a little more significant than what we've seen in past seasons. Uh, I don't disagree. Um, I, and that's probably a lot of that is kind of interesting um, hypothesizing for the rest of the season. And there's, I think there's a lot there to chew on. Um, there are also, I think, by the events that happened in this episode, um, the fact that, you know, as you say, initially it's kind of a joke, especially when we see that somehow, you know, Kendall and um, Roman and them are actually watching. They've gotten a hold of it and they're watching it and they're, and they keep rewind, they keep playing it over and over and laughing at it and how it's making its way, making its rounds through the ATN uh, location and how people are reacting to it. And Logan is obviously keenly aware of this. He's truly, he's truly viewed it himself already. And I don't know if this is quite a, um, even though I thought there were, there was a little bit of a riff there. It was a little bit of, I thought, are we going Citizen Kane here? Are we, I mean, and for those of you who haven't seen Citizen Kane, you know, other than like, come on, go, you should see Citizen Kane. Come on. Um, one of the major things in Citizen Kane is, um, his belief that one of, one of the women that he falls in love with and eventually marries or you know, falls in love in, in quotation marks because either Charles Wester King really truly loves anyone is debatable, I guess, but he believes her to be like this amazing uh, potential opera singer and whatever. And she's really not. And he does. He, he's so the, there's a famous meme of him standing up and clapping. That's, you know, he was like the only one sticking up for her. It, 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 a lot of the movie revolves around that. And you start saying, Oh, I wonder if that's going to be the case with Carrie. Is Logan going to have this, false belief that she should be like the next up and coming ATN anchor. We see in this episode, no, he does not think that. And he's very, um, and even though he put it out there and he's still very, um, sensitive, shall we say to anyone mocking it as we see in that great scene when he comes into the conference room. And clearly we know that Hugo, uh, the Fisher Stevens character, and Jerry have been watching it, and I think he comes in right when Hugo is is, is laughing his ass off, and you know quickly closes the laptop. And then that, that, one of the best tension moments in the entire episode was them insisting on him opening. It's like, oh no, no put, put. It's like, no, I, I can't. Like, oh, it looks like the lights don't. You can you can put it on because he knows once he opens it up, and there's that flicker of her on the screen, and you know Logan sees it, and I'm going, oh. This is going to come back to bite poor little Hugo pretty soon. I think it kind of bites Jerry already in this episode. Um, I also wonder, however, because you have, we have that scene when, um, cause Logan passes the buck. He, he hasn't, you know, he wants his hands clean of this. He, he and this is, a, it's almost comical the way he does it, which is rare because Logan doesn't do things in a very comical way. Um, but Tom does because then Tom passes that puck over to Greg. And then we get that scene of Greg essentially, you know, giving her the bad news in the most painfully awkward and ridiculous way possible. Also gives us one of the best threats I've ever heard anyone tell someone. I think she says that she'll, um, she'll strip him like a human string cheese or she, of, she says, I'll take you apart. Like take you string apart. cheese. <laughs> it's a great, it's a great line. But, um, I think in that scene, you that she knows that this came originally from Logan. That just it got it got passed down the line, which is actually even worse to her. And I so what I wonder about 
And again, I don't know how it might manifest, so maybe it wouldn't, because at the end of the day, she's you know not just an employee, whatever, but she's dealing with a multi-billionaire, and she and you know she want a piece of that, you know. But there could be a certain vindictiveness that happens, because she knows at the end of the day, whose final decision is it really? It's really Logan's, because his decision would 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 count. And if she is getting knocked out of it, it had to be with his blessing. It can't happen otherwise. And right. If, well, I mean, she knows he picks up the phone and calls the newsroom directly. Yeah. And the fact that not only is it Logan basically at the end of the day saying, nah, the fact that he would let it happen where it got passed down to a schmuck like Greg in her eyes to be the one to kind of, you know, give her the news, I think in a way makes it even worse. It's like, you know, this is who you send to do to do your to do your dirty work, you know the the doofus seriously. So so I do wonder if again we may never see anything about this again for the rest of the season. We only have whatever number of episodes are left. But I do. I, I was wondering about that. I was like, oh, that that could kind. Of, I, and I love how Greg kind of takes it like, oh, I actually I actually took care of that. I did it. You know, <laughs> yeah. I did something like really. That was that was <laughs> Michael Scott handles. <laughs> Hirings and firings yeah. better than you do, sir, <laughs> kid. But um, I just wonder if that might, at some point, could possibly have an ill effect on the Logan Carey situation. I don't, I don't know that it would, but, but it, I can't dismiss that it wouldn't. You know what I mean? I, I just thought like this episode, she got a lot of airtime. Oh, if absolutely. She's not going to be my. If she's not going to be a, a piece on the board, she sure got a lot of airtime. Oh, absolutely. Um, I, I, I think it, it's one of the episodes where she's gotten the most airtime yep. because um, as opposed to just being someone who sent or delivered messages or or is talking on behalf of somebody, there was actually a, a mini storyline around her specifically. So that is, you know, I'm, I'm sure she loved that. I believe I've, I remember looking her up in IMDb once. I think she's a pretty accomplished comic actress. She's done a lot of other things as well. Um, so it gives her a chance to shine uh, more so than normal in this one. Um, we've kind of like, in a way, we've talked a lot, a lot about, uh, most of the stuff that really happens at ATN because a lot of it does tend to revolve around that. And a lot of the, the Tom Gregg, you know, back and forth stuff is about that video or about, um, when Logan initially shows up. The only other thing that really happens of major significance other than the eventual realization that, hey, the, the, the kids might be looking to screw you again. Is there's that scene where he gives a speech? He gives, you know, it's like, it's like the rally the troops kind of a speech. Um, and I'm watching that scene. And I was, and I was wondering how, how far they were going to take it. Is he, is he going to make everyone in the room feel, you know, painful and awkward and weird? Like he is when he's originally walking the floor when, when he stops behind that one guy and he's pointing out to, um, to Tom, I believe, um, that this guy's been spending all this time just like writing an email. <laughs> And there's something great about that scene because I think anyone watching it who's ever worked in an office, especially if you had like not the greatest of managers or bosses, whatever, um, the type that may occasionally even walk the floor themselves or be, or micromanage, shall we say. And then having like this one, one of the probably the most richest and most powerful dudes in the world standing behind you, kind of mocking the fact that you've been spending all this time writing an email. Um, I felt I kept thinking that that guy's handling this a lot better than I would. I would have broken yeah. into a cold sweat and probably fainted or something like that. Um, but I derail my own thought. 
it's the the speech. And the first thing I thought when I was watching the speech, where I realized, oh, it is going to be a it is going to be a rallying cry as he as he he's initially sounding like he's being kind of negative and kind of mocking the idea. Ooh, we only went up a few percent, whatever. And I couldn't help but think that this, to me, and I don't know if this ever actually happened, but I can so easily imagine that it happened. I can easily imagine that several years ago, Rupert Murdoch, when they were selling off the Fox assets, selling them off to Disney, in fact, but what did he hold on to? Because he, he sold off the entertainment assets, but he kept the news divisions. He kept Fox News, whatever. And I kept thinking, this is the kind of speech that Murdoch would have done. And we all, I mean, I think not we all, but most people know that the Roys are at least, shall we say, loosely based on the, on the Murdoch family. And I kept thinking, oh yeah, I can totally see it. I mean, I can, I believe he would even curse as much. You know, they both have accents from, you know, far from overseas. <laughs> the whole thing, I could just see it. It, it actually is based on a Rupert Murdoch moment. And there was a uh, tweet that I saw um, that um, the person on Twitter was uh, Sarah Ellison, oh. who who put up that in 2007, uh, Rupert Murdoch stood atop paper boxes and addressed the Wall Street Journal staff. Oh, um, wow. So it. It, it actually was uh, inspired by Ru- now he wasn't talking to Fox News, but he was at the Wall Street Journal. And I, I didn't see what the contents of that speech were or, or know it, but it was inspired by Rupert Murdoch. So your your spotty sense was tingling for a very wow. good reason. I guess they own, I guess I know obviously Murdoch owned the Post in New York, and I think that he, he might have owned the Wall Street Journal also now that I think about it. I'm not sure about that, but but you know, obviously, if he gave a speech there, so clearly he did. I just didn't remember that, but that makes perfect sense because it, it, it still it would have been a holding that he he hadn't sold off because uh, Murdoch was at the, at the end of the day he was more interested in in news coverage and and the power that you can get from that and how you can really change the conversation as we've seen you know Fox News has done over the last 25 years plus. Okay, so um, like I said, like I had also mentioned, he he does later find out during during all that towards the end of all this that the kids are aligning with Stewie and Sandy to block the sale, um, which means I need to bounce back a little bit, you know, rewind the episode just a t- teeny bit to the other major plot character push of the episode, which is those rumbling Roy kids, and when they I I, I love the the pettiness when they realize they have to make their way into the city and. and and anyone who knows, you know, any major city, but especially one like New York, if you get, you're that far out and you got to get it, I mean, the convenience of being the super rich with a chopper, a helicopter is nice, but if you're going to have to drive in, oh, that's going to take a little bit of time, you know, but they eventually do get, make their way in the city. That's why, you know, day becomes night because it probably took, takes them that long. But before they can get to what I ostensibly is the rehearsal for their over, their, their, excuse me, often overlooked older brother, who should they run into on, on the street? You know, it's like magic. But Sandy and Stewie, who are trying to sell them on the idea of voting no. And I, I kind of gotta adore the act that Shiv puts on, you know, it's there's almost there's almost something almost soap operatic about it where 
you're clearly in on this, whatever, but because we know that already. But I like to know, no, maybe it's something that we should talk about. <laughs> I, I was just really enjoying the, the way that she's trying to like, kind of like walk that little tightrope there. And, th- and which is what she does a lot during this episode because she keeps, as far as I can recall right now, She's keeping a lot of her true motivations close to the vest or chest, depending how you like that phrase, um, and doesn't really let them in on that. Um, the the what the, they they have that little meeting in the street, and then eventually they get to the place where presumably that rehearsal dinner happened. And does it dawn on anyone? <laughs> yeah, unless I'm forgetting somebody. If this indeed was, and correct me if I'm wrong, that's why the, it's titled rehearsal. A rehearsal dinner for Connor's wedding? A rehearsal dinner for his wedding and none of his family was there? I mean, yeah. I'm, I'm not wrong about that because obviously they weren't there and Logan and, and wasn't there. His mom is... Wait, do they have the same mother? I can't remember. Do they have the same mother or do they have a different mother? Uh, I thought he had a different mom. I think he has a different mother. I can't remember. I apologize to the listeners for for that factoid. But, yeah, because you remember when they go see her, like um, the the three of them go see her. Yeah, uh, Connor's think, not there. I I believe I believe that is the case. I I you know what? We'll we'll check after the episode. I'm, I'm yeah, I'm pretty sure. But in, in any case, no family there, which is kind of it. I think that without it being said. And I'll, I'll say, let me just say, no. <laughs> oh my God, I've become Brian. Uh, let me just say, let, let, let me just say, uh, well now, now I'm Bill Clinton. Um, <laughs> that does sound like a Clinton kind of thing. Let, it does. Let, let me just say that it's foreshadowing for that great moment at the end with Connor when you realize there's no family here and what it says later. I want to stop talking like that. Um, but it's oh, so endearing. My my note said it was a. Uh, I, I'm glad you like it, Brian. It was. <laughs> <laughs> I call. I refer to it in my notes as subliminal foreshadowing. I was like, yeah, okay, we'll we'll go with that. So and yeah, and it, it it's an interesting moment when they get to the you know the the post rehearsal dinner, especially when they run into Willa on the stairs, who is clearly fleeing the place. And then we hear the story from Connor how apparently she got up to give a speech, said I can't do this, disappeared in the bathroom for like forty minutes with some friends before leaving, which which is where they just ran into them. So it, it's that whole you got this whole situation of. Connor looks like he's just, you know, two steps away from the cliffside of doom here. And for a, a rare moment, even though Roman being the smart ass he is, but he can't help that, you know, throughout the whole episode. Um, at least the brothers kind of seen, kind, kind of seem want to want to help him. And Shiv is the one who really wants to talk about the, the, the option of, of the no vote, whatever. Um, I just, I, 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 I get excited because I, and I think you brought it up in a previous week last week, I guess the more time we get to spend with them all together, the, the, the greater the show is as even though they're all great in their own individual scenes and moments, the longer we get to see the Roy kids all together, either they're working together while still ripping at each other or just ripping at each other in general. That's the, to me, that's the best stuff that succession does quite frankly. Yeah. And, and it, it's funny that both shows that we're talking about tonight, we've made comments that when the main characters all end up in a room together, 
that we always like those scenes. And uh, in, in this in particular, seeing them all together, uh, they really set Connor apart in a lot of ways in this episode from the three of them that he's the least um, sort of connected to them in many ways, but he wants connection more than any of them. Um, you know, I, I think he makes a comment at one point, like, I just want everybody at my wedding. Like he, he just wants them all to be able to be together and not at each other's throats. He kind of wants that business behind them so right. they can move on. Um, and, and that they all are in the midst of it. They can't let go of it except for Roman who wants to, but, but, you know, feels torn allegiances to both sides. Right. Well, there's something to be said for, you know, Connor's the oldest one there, and he pretty much distanced himself from the whole situation some time ago. Uh, either that was part of his own father's um, thinking as well or not. Almost doesn't matter, because it doesn't seem like, unlike the other three, and this is something that Connor will bring up later on, and we'll get there, So, but we're, we're probably going to, you know, we're going to take pieces of Connor's own wisdom and, and use it and pass it off as our own here. I think um, Connor isn't vying for his father's attention and love the way the other three do. And which is interesting because he also, but at times, although he, he's always been portrayed or often been portrayed as the more comic relief of, of of at least the siblings are concerned because you know him and maybe Greg maybe, but as those four are concerned, um, so because he doesn't have the axe to grind, you know, with, with or he doesn't or, or or maybe he didn't. He just decided he got past it. It didn't matter anymore. He was he's living his life, you know. The fact that he's often mocked by whether it be Roman or even the others and not taken that seriously, um, he's learned how to shrug that off. Um, but at the end of the day, and even with all this drama that he knows is going on now where, you know, they're on hot, red alert in the family when, you know, the, the sides have been drawn more clearly now than ever before when there's a, such a deep divide where, you know, like in previous seasons when it was everybody versus Kendall, you know, and stuff like that. And then it became, okay, now, now people, they've joined forces, whatever. And Connor in a way is kind of in the middle of it. He'll, he's basically going to just benefit from the sale because he'll just get some, he'll get, you know, he'll, he'll get a few billion dollars out of it or something for a business that he's not really involved in or really cares about at this point, but he could sure use the money, even if it's just to prop up his ridiculous, political ambition but i think even the political ambition thing again as i said we we look at him as being something of a somewhat he's somewhat self-deluded at times and then he had then he's extremely self-aware other times as he as he absolutely is in this episode but much like the way logan sees atn and and to echo my thoughts about how he mirrors rupert murdoch um those who Though, like those who give the news can control the news, and you control. And if you control the news, you control the conversation. You control the narrative, which is where your power comes from. And I think Connor was trying to do his own thing, you know, as far as like the the presidential ambition, whatever. And, and he even admitted it in a previous episode, just to keep that one percent. Like, yeah, does he actually think he can win a presidency at a certain point? I don't. Absolutely not. But as long as you're in that conversation, 
you're, you have power. And that's the one way he finally has power that moves him away from being just the, oh, the one that's often mocked. You know, oh, the one who's going to get married to the former hooker, you know, and who lives in some wacky ranch, you know, away from, you know, the big, the big city slickers, like, like the rest of the family. Right. And I, it is, it is, uh, kind of heartbreaking to think of the double entendre of of in the conversation like that connor just wants to be in the conversation yes uh because i think in many ways that's how he feels in the family there's this whole conversation that goes on with the siblings that he's not really you know participating in because he's not in it uh and in many ways it seems like he has more wisdom than we probably give him credit for that, that he sees their dad as we've seen him in past seasons to go to Logan for money, that that's what he, that's how he sees Logan transactionally for money and get together at holidays, see each other. Um, but he doesn't try to move into Logan's world to run in that circle the way the other kids do. And the other kids and Logan have this other conversation going on. He's not, he's not a part of, Um, and his sort of way to be legitimate outside of that is to be, get this 1% in the presidential election and think maybe then he's got some, uh, gravitas of his own. And it's really kind of sad to apply that to his family and how he sees himself. Um, but you know, when he finally leaves, what you alluded to, he says later, you know, um, I think he's realistic and sees things in a way the others maybe don't. And the line that I know we'll talk about Logan drops. I think Connor already had that figured out about, right. right. Like, I think Connor knows he's not as serious as his dad and other people. Um, but he wants to be somebody that, that at least is listened to. Uh, the question is, are the other three kids capable of, of, of that or not. And we don't know, but I think Connor has more wisdom than we've given him credit for. Um, perhaps I'll, I'll, I'll save more. I'll save more of my commentary on Connor till when we get to that scene. Cause we're, we're you know, we're almost there anyway. Um, no, I'll, I'll say it now. I, I don't, I, here's a phrase I like to use again. Cause I used it earlier. I don't disagree, but, um, I think, but what I said about him compared to, let's say, Shiv, or perhaps Roman, and only when when he's not at his worst, Kendall, um, but what is exemplified, especially in this episode, and also his previous interactions with them, is, like I said, having a nice ability to be self-aware. Even the presidential stuff, which, I mean, he one can say, okay, he might be blind to the idea that this is ridiculous, but then we kind of know. But we know. But I know why. We know why you're doing this. And you know what? There's been a history of people that maybe when you initially heard they were going to run for president, oh my gosh, that's not or or any political office, oh my god, that sounds ridiculous. And then you know you fast forward six months or a year, hey, it's not so ridiculous. It's not so ridiculous that you know that this former football player, you know, who who seems like he has brain damage, came this close to to being the senator from Georgia and really flipping an entire Senate as a result that close um and others which we are more obvious but i won't i don't want to go down that road for this podcast um 
So, but, and I also, and just to say it with him just for one more moment, and again, because I, sometimes I don't remember things, so you can correct me or someone will correct me, I guess. Um, even with that whole political campaign, and he talks, and they talk about how much money everything's going to cost, and even it'll cost them another hundred million just to maybe to maintain that one percentage point they said in the previous episode. I don't recall him ever, and I could be, you know what? Maybe there is a scene. Does he go to Logan? Does he try to get money from Logan to help support his campaign? Or not? I don't remember if it was the campaign or something else. It may have been the campaign, but I know he's asked him uh, for money. And and when he talked about the campaign with Logan, uh, I, I think Logan tried to steer him away. But I think he okay. did ask him for money. I think you're right. I I, I couldn't be sure because I didn't. I was going to say something. I realized. Oh, wait, I think I'm wrong about that. I don't want to make a declaration that he's never gone to Logan for money. He's like, no, I think he has. I couldn't remember if it was for the political campaign or if it was connected to. Oh my gosh, the 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 the, the, the debut, the Broadway play for his for Willa, and then and how much how much of a black hole that can be money wise. Um, might have been one or both. I think it was maybe trying to get his dad maybe to be an investor in that or something that sounds like something he would have done actually but um but let me get off connor a little bit but just stay with the roys in general because at this point in the episode they go to that bar by the way it's a new york if that's a new york bar and i didn't actually recognize it i'm sure it probably is and um it looks really nice so i thought it was really weird (laughs) That they would have, that the Roys would have such a snooty perspective that they keep making derisive comments about the place. I was like, dude, it doesn't even look like a dive. I mean, it looks perfectly fun. Whatever. Um, you know, especially when, when you got Rome there, because Roman, Roman's going to be Roman anyway. But I think one of the key moments that we're going to get to here, um, beyond me saying before I even mention it, by the way, all the stuff in the bar. I'm referring to the bar, not the rehearsal before and not the karaoke place after, but in the bar, my major note that I wrote was, this is the reason we watch Succession. The, 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 the quick back and forth between them, the, the affection and loathing that happens all at the same time. The, the fact that these people who are all, they're all at, at the very least worth millions, you know, whatever. And the fact that they can be, you know, children all over again, you know, wrestling to see a, you know, what's on a cell phone and, and, and arguing about the most ridiculous of points and, and points of conversation. Whether someone wished somebody a happy birthday, quite frankly, but all the way that all plays out. That's my favorite stuff in the episode. That's my favorite stuff in this series in general is, and when we go back once again to repeat a point we've made already, uh, when you get them together, this is the fun of it. And we've often talked about a lot of different, uh, big style television series. And I've always talked about how, uh, uh, a common dramatic conceit is let's separate everybody. And eventually they come together. Whether it's more in literal terms, like a show like Lost did, where, oh, let's, let's toss everybody on different parts of the island and eventually they'll all come back together. And you notice, hey, people weren't that happy about that, <laughs> you know, but, but we, but, but, but they did it. Or Game of Thrones is another one like that. Oh my God. You know, and, and, you know, one can list, you know, 30 other shows have done something along those lines. Um, with succession, the more we get this, the more things get, get more contained. And I love having Kendall in the mix with them because they're, I love how they're, they're similar, but they're so different at the same time. And it's like 
very different pieces of music all playing together and this and you get this beautiful chaotic cacophony between just those three and then you throw connor into the mix who's really kind of like an outlier among them and having him really get involved made this i think a very special episode in that case um so I've said all that. So let me get to the thing that you mentioned before, because we really, I think that's a, a good turning point in the episode, and it's an intriguing point to talk about. And the interesting thing I was going to mention, it's when Kendall has that private phone conversation with Matson, or either you know the Norwegian or Swede, or whatever the hell he is. Um, it's uh, Skarsgård. And who clearly uh, expresses his concerns that um, that certain... I think he refers to them as activists on the board, by the way. By the way, calling people like those two activists, like, wow, that's really, that's really having fun with the meaning of the word activist. Um, That certain activists on the board are going to try to block the sale. And he makes it kind of clear that, you know, this happens, you know, this very may well, this very well, very may well, very well may, whatever, uh, scuttle the whole deal. And because Matt's essentially threatening that he's going to do that. And I love the way he and Kendall's conversation, you're thinking one way. And instead, in that, that turn that happens, now Kendall wants to block the sale. It's a very interesting flip. And it goes to everything we talked about before about what's really motivating what people are doing what what really is their end game here what is it they really want here and how much and and how how much are they blinded by just you know whatever you want to call it revenge you want to call it you know just you know proving a point and if here's the thing it's it's a dead heat between Kendall and Shiv which one might have better reason because Shiv might think so but Kendall looked like he was supposed to be the heir apparent from the very first episode of the series. So you had that built in right from the get-go. And then, of course, the whole thing that happened with the, with, with the, uh, the tragic death um, when they were overseas and how Logan used that against him, which makes Kendall's turn against his father, you know, a lot more understandable than maybe his, his siblings realized because they didn't know. I don't, I mean, there's been time that's passed since the end of last season, and I'll shut up in a second. Um, I'm still not sure if he, if Kendall's ever told Shiv and Roman, I don't, I'm, I'm guessing, I'm going to guess he didn't for, for some reason, why he wouldn't have, or, unless, or maybe they just figured it out themselves. That's actually possible. I, I should give them credit for that. Maybe they did figure it out themselves. But he tells him, like, hey, this happened, you know, I hate, you know, I'm a bad person, I did whatever. It's like, oh, and dad clearly was using this against me and make, and made me his pup, you know, whatever he be. It was almost like a, a weird, do they refer to him as a human gaslight or something in this episode at some point? Yeah. Yeah. There's a little, there's a little bit of that there too, but I, I, I just, I, so th- this turn here with Kendall, cause I, I, initially I'm like going, huh, that's exactly what I didn't think. Oh no! Wait, that makes perfect sense. I, I think it's a real. I, I think it's the most important kind of flip in the episode. Well, you when he talks to Matson and Matson basically, but Matson basically gives him the inside info that Logan then discloses in the meeting with all of them. Like yep. Kendall now actually knows Matson very well. May walk and the deal may die. Matson doesn't pull any punches. 
and basically says like, Hey, a lot of guys talk shit, but I'm not really talking shit. Like I'm the kind of guy that if this doesn't go through, you know, I'm probably done and that's it. And at that point, if they want the money, they want to do all this and be free. Your thought is that, that he's going to definitely be like, Shiv, we're not screwing up the deal. Uh, so the flip, you know, to, in my mind, the way that we're talking about it is okay. If Matson walks, it screws us, but it really screws dad too. And, right. and so now I have a piece of information that no one else has and I can lobby for this and, and sort of hide in the crowd of people that want to do this mm-hmm. and accomplish my goal without being the one responsible for killing the deal. Right. I, I think when, when this happens for me, it kind of crystallizes a lot of stuff with, with Kendall. Um, and I think Shiv shares this with him as well. The only, the only difference between them, right now is Shiv has also got the situation with Tom and you know, so that's, that's an addition. That's obviously a major factor, which is impacting her as well, because she's also trying to hold on to what should be hers because of what can happen with a divorce with Tom. If he starts, because clearly he's going after something, if he's going to complicate matters by, you know, conflicting out every, you know, contacting every lawyer, possible lawyer in, in, in New York city that, that she could conceivably go to. Um, you don't do that. If you want, like I said before, you don't do that. If you just want to be like, ah, we can, we can just go our separate ways. You know, you're, you're, you're after more than that. Um, but the fact is it seems in this moment, that aside, they are f- more motivated to screw over their dad than anything else, than anything else. And that, as I think we've said in more words than necessary, probably, that is what separates them from Roman. That's not, that's the motivation those two share. Roman does not have that which is why which you know feeds into why we see roman showing up at the end of the episode and all that stuff as we as i believe we we've pretty much thought or suspected from the get-go because during all their interactions before he's the one who kind of like okay but he he doesn't want this to continue to be a thing versus dad you know if we're going to do something together let's just do something together it's it's interesting the biggest smart ass who who rarely can say a serious word that isn't, you know, snarky or nasty in some ways is also the most, has the most plaintive way of wanting to proceed that, okay, I just want to do this, the hundred thing, or I just want, okay, we're going to do a piercing. Okay. Let, let's just re, 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 remake this thing and make it our own, you know, again, wanting to distance himself from their father um, because he doesn't, he's not out to get his dad. He's disappointed of, of, of how he got treated, and he know he understands his the per, what the perception is of him, but I think he still cares about impressing him. If he can do this, I'm also going to impress my dad. You know, I'll show him that I can be. You know, I'm not defective. I, there isn't something wrong with me. I can be something. I can be. I can be you. You know, but 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 a better you. You know, so I, I think that's all at play here as well. Yeah, I agree with that. So. This scene again. I, I I already referenced it in our silly in my silly intro. So I I just but I can't not at least make a mention of it. Other than the Jaws line, my favorite thing in the entire episode, as far as far as just funny dialogue wise, is when Roman does this entire analogy relating them to the Beatles. 
which I kept thinking, hey, I wonder if Roman watched the uh, the Disney Plus, you know, Peter Jackson documentary that he would actually be kind of that aware of all this stuff, whatever. But again, love this whole scene, you know, the distrust, but they're still trying to unite you know, about the text, the shifting of allegiances, whatever. And then as we get towards the end of the bar scene, we get... I would call a great, funny, yet, oh my God, sad line from Connor, which also pushes, dictates where they're going to end up. And the line is, and based on, as you know, Brian, my own proclivities occasionally in this, in this area, I would like to sing one fucking song in karaoke because I've seen it in the movies and nobody ever wants to go. (laughs) And it's like, that's so sad. (laughs) <laughs> it's, it is it's 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 really sad that he just wants to go do what normal people do go to a normal people bar and go to a normal karaoke thing and and drags them kicking and screaming but i i, I the thing the thing that's funny is and while i love it and you love it most normal people don't pick Leonard Cohen to say <laughs> oh. karaoke but 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 it's but but in new york that may be true uh but but I thought that was a really really. Well, I was so curious what he was gonna pick. Oh yeah, because there's a joke earlier about him picking the song by the Eagles. Oh yeah, uh, and then it's like Leonard Cohen. Yeah. Well, the the thing with the Leonard Cohen song, I'll tell you something. I've I've done my share of karaoke in in, in New York, no less, and not just in local bars here in Brooklyn. I've done it in. Met several places throughout Manhattan, Koreatown, where there's all, which is where the most well-known places to do karaoke in New York City tend to be, etc. I've never seen anyone sing Leonard Cohen in karaoke unless you're including Hallelujah, which is originally a Leonard Cohen song, even right. though Generally speaking, if you're singing Hallelujah in karaoke, you're doing the Jeff Buckley version. You're not right. doing the Leonard Cohen version, which is sung in a very different way. And Buckley kind of made it more his own before his own passing because it's kind of iconic. But I've never heard any. I, I you know, again, mo- when I'm in the city, I tend to do what, like kind of like what the Roys do here. They tend to get a, they got a private room. They're not like in a karaoke bar where there's everyone around them. Um, most places they have that area. But then people get private rooms and, you know, we kind of, if we're, the, if we're like, if I'm going to go through trouble going into Manhattan to do karaoke, then I want a private room. If I'm just going to a local bar, then it's fine. We don't, I don't mind singing in front of everybody. You know, wow, the crowd. Um, love that. Of course, we also find out when they get to this place at some point that Connor has actually contacted Logan. <laughs> And let them know where they are, and they're going to realize that Logan actually is going to want to meet them, meet them downstairs initially, whatever. Um, there's a, I wrote a line down. Is it, and I'm feeling stupid now. Is Roman referring to Connor or Kendall? Re, refresh my memory. I'm a horrible podcaster. When he says, do I get to be a Buddhist if I kill a fucking Buddhist? <laughs> Oh, he he's referring to Kendall, he is and there's Kendall. a line earlier where Kendall's talking about being Buddhist, and Roman says, "Nice fucking Tom Forge Buddha." Yeah, that's <laughs> it. Okay, thank you. Thank that's you. earlier, but then he 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 hits him again about it here. It's Kendall he's talking about. I th- I thought it was Kendall, um, but I couldn't remember what instigated it. You know, this is what happens when you when I when I watch these shows post midnight, and I'm trying to stay up and take notes, whatever. Okay, Logan eventually shows up. We get the scene of Logan and the kids and Carrie, who does not leave. They want her out. 
but Logan doesn't, which in a way I think maybe help helps him with the situation with her where she could be angry about the whole video thing, but him make having her stay there says something that, that, that actually might squash that as far as it being an issue for her. It's like, I still want you to be a major player here. I just don't know if I want you to do that. So the scene between them, and we've seen variations on something like this in the series before where Logan's in the position of he's sort of kind of apologizing, but is he, you know, what is it he's really sorry for or not? You know, whatever. And you've got the disbelieving Shiv is really taking, you know, taking the fight to him. It's, it's, and, and also because she's the one he's currently personally screwing with because of the Tom situation. So that makes perfect sense. It makes perfect sense. Cause like you're, you're really screwing with me more, more than these two, whatever. So she's not going to believe a damn word they're saying. But we, we, we get this great parrying back and forth, which eventually gets to the thing with Logan. And it's much like the scene he had with his um, security chief in the, in the first episode and other moments throughout the series. I love when he uses very plain speaking words that have much more meaning and resonance than you'd think. He's able to say more by saying something which you might not even quite get what he means. You referenced it already. When, you know, he, he basically tells them, you are not serious people. And that's, I mean, that, that, uh, speaking, you know, speaking as a writer, blah, blah, I marveled at that line because I kept thinking that's, that line says so much with words that I or many probably would not have chosen. And I, you know, did it. I was like, I'm, I'm, I know, I know Better Call Saul is still up for, going to be up for some, but it's going to be hard to beat Succession's final season, dude. So we, let's all get ready that Better Call Saul might not be taking anything. Because when I see writing like this, I'm just like, oh my God, it's so good. And it's so powerful. And I, I feel there is a certain, we, I talked about the birthday party last week and how you know, we can see Logan being angry and this and dismissive and, and really nasty. But at the end of the day, he's sad. And at the end of all this, you know, when he, he, he puts in, in his mind, at least the effort. And it still comes down to when he says that. And, and yeah, and yes, there's a bit of a bite to what he says at the end here, but he's sad. It's disappointing him that he has to, at the end of the day, this is what he has to say and that this is not going to ever be, at least foreseeably resolved because he does love them. You know, it's a screwed up love, but it's love. He, he, he wouldn't have any of the issues with these guys dealing with them if that wasn't there. He would probably squash them like a bug, uh, you know, uh, and uh, you know, a lot more effectively and quickly. And I think that does hamper his actions to a certain extent. I, I, I just, I, it, it's such a, gr- it's like this, this sequence. We, we, we get this great moment here, and then the one that's going to come up after it. But that, you know, just staying with this for the moment, that was just like, oh Jesus, man. And it's like, but it's interesting because we're. I don't think the viewer is really. We've not been trained to root for Logan at all in this series. I don't think so. He's kind of he's he's more villainous than anything else. No, but they flipped the script on him. Yes, and that and that and that 
I mean, have we ever seen him go to someone else and and sort of and sort of have some humility? Right. Um, and for him, you know, he he just flat out says, like, you know, I don't do apologies. I'm not good at it, whatever. Um, but he goes to them. They won't come out to the car. He goes inside. He sits down. I think it's funny that Kendall chooses to sit on the back of the chair so he can stay above Logan. Yes, I noticed that. The, the entire time. I bet filming that, like, he probably regretted that at some point in the middle of the day. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, sitting up there for all the, the different shots. But, um, but I, I there are a couple of times in this that you see what Logan has that none of the kids have. Uh, when he's on the boxes at the at, at giving the speech, w- when he's talking to them here and saying, like, look, like you don't understand. You're right. Like the numbers are there. I understand why you would think this is smart. He acknowledges them, but says, like, you don't understand deals like this go away. If you don't take them, they go away. And he's made the the read and he's read this guy and he knows it. Um, but they can't get past the emotion of it. Um, and the thing with him is that, yes, he might get emotional and he might get mad, but he'll go do deals with people he hates if the deal's right. And if he gets a good price, if he can make the deal, he does it. Even if he hates them, they're at the point where they can't make a deal with him because they're mad. And that's not a part of who he is. Right. At the end of the day, he would make a deal if it was the right deal. Um, and saying they're not serious people is, I mean, what, what more could Logan Roy say to someone? Right. The other, the one last thing about Logan, which I, I just thought of, I feel like I left out of all that. The, the, the thing with a moment or a scene like this and maybe slightly, slightly during the first episode of the season, but more here, um, the one thing that Logan doesn't like to have to do or ever have himself thought of that way or seen that way, but he's almost giving this slight opening the door a crack and letting us see this about him is being vulnerable. And the only time he's been vulnerable on this series is due to his health issues that he's had, which, you know, which, which was, which was an, which was a, a theme from again, like from the get go, because of his possibly failing health and the issues that he has, and he ends up in the hospital, he ends up with this, or maybe he might have a certain form of dementia or whatever. Which, by the way, we haven't heard about that in a while, have we? Uh, <laughs> you know, so it, it's a it, it's a great little in that little. It's a great major scene. Oh, and, and by the way, the thing with um, that you met, you amazingly pointed out, um, even jokingly, about how Kendall is sitting up. And so he has this position above. Um, it's a fascinating thing to watch in this series. I'm not saying one has the time to go go rewind and watch the first three seasons again. No, that's crazy. Although, well, why not? Probably should have done it before I came back. Um, key scenes, major scenes involving multiple players, usually the Roy family, throughout the seasons, they take very special care with how they place the people in the scene. There's a, there, it's not simply how, it's not just simply about people sitting across from each other or whatever. There will be things relating to the height of where they appear on screen, whether they're lower or higher. The most obvious one, and I talked about it, um, during the best of whatever year it was, <laughs> I forget at this point, uh, during the finale, the season three finale, the, the, the triangle of 
Kendall, Roman, and Shiv, and how that's choreographed, and how that's blocked, and how Kendall is very much in the foreground of the scene, but he's also diminished, and he's lowered, he's he's lower than all of them. You know, it, it's done very deliberately, and it it's like this 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 um, there's a photographic term for it, I can't think of it right now, but the, with, they maintain that kind of triangle. He's always on the bottom of it, and then even even when Ro, Roman kind of sits alongside him, it's, it's when it's starting to you know even out a little bit, but it's still quite not there. But when they do the scene in the karaoke, I remember having the same thought, and I also had the thought that even when you get, I love that it's not four of them. You know, you, you've got Carrie in there, which kind of changes the shape. And you've got Connor there, which leads us to what I think is the whoa moment of the episode. It's what Connor has to say after all this is said and done. And we've talked a lot about Connor and the way he perceives himself and the way he perceives his family. We probably we, we, we basically did our own foreshadowing for this scene, quite frankly. But it's what you were saying, Brian, about um, the wisdom that he has, or and what I was saying about the self awareness that he has. And he and um, the actor's name is escaping me at the moment. God, I know, I know the actor's name. I just, I just forgot it. I, sh- I never write things down in front of me. He was, he's been in so many things over the years, like Speed and a bunch of TV shows. Whatever. It's his. It might be his best moment on the whole series. Um, definitely, as far as far as power and emotion. I know you're looking at. Thank you. Um, and the way he talks about how he. He got used to the idea of where he stood in this family and and how he was seen quite some time ago. And he's fine with that. He learned and and the way he talks about things about, you know, about not being loved. And maybe and maybe and, and maybe he'll never be loved. Either be in his family, either be in his current relationship, because he is kind of freaking out because Willa has kind of disappeared, and he's kind of tr- trying to track her on on his phone, and it and she's kind of in and out, whatever. And at this point, you know, he he might not even have someone to marry, whatever. But the wh- everything he says here, and he really sticks a fork in all of them, and there's no denying it. And he sees and says things about them. That none of them have ever said about each about each other, including Lo- including Logan, quite frankly, about how they're all. And I didn't write any of this stuff, so I'm just trying to remember off the top of my head. But I believe he refers to them as they're they're like sponges, you know, desperate yeah. to soak in any form of love, whatever. And while and it's almost comical when he calls himself like an insect who lives on a rock, and you know, just you know, or whatever he calls himself, whatever. But he said, but he's kind of weirdly. It's it's a weird analogy, but he's kind of right. Yeah. Yeah, I did. Uh, the actor is Alan Ruck. There you go, Alan Ruck. Um, but but the the idea, the the thing that he points out that hits to the heart of all of them is he points out that you know he he knows what his imperfections are, uh, and has a has an amazing self awareness of what his imperfections are, but he calls all of them out as insecure and needy and that's what's fueling all of this and um he doesn't need it which is why he can walk away and why he can live away from the city why he's not in all of the intrigue because it it's just all this dysfunctional soup that he sees them all stewing about in and the way he the way he delivers it is just as effective as logan roy saying you're not serious people yes 
it's by the time Connor is done and he leaves, it's in a way it's a one-two punch to yeah. the, the Roy kids. You know that you know you know Dad has him staggering. Connor put them on the mat, so to speak. I just watched Creed for the first time the other day. I can't help it. Sorry, um, <laughs> got two more to go now. Right? Anyway, I'll, I'll watch them next year. So, and it's interesting um, as as we leave that scene and how the epi- and, and, how, and how the next like minute or two goes because we we do pick up with him and he returns. I guess I'm assuming he's staying in a hotel. I'm guessing. Um, and Willa is actually there, which runs contrary to what he thought. Although it was interesting how he had become kind of uh, resigned to the fact if she's there, we get you know if she loves me, she doesn't love me, whatever. It's you know, it, and it's it's an interesting kind of dynamic. The more you think about it, it's like you know, does she? Do they? I don't know. I, I we, we don't we don't spend enough time with them. We we can we have our our. our perceptions the way everyone else does which they which is usually roman screwing with them quite frankly and making the, the jokes that he does but at the end of the day like in a weird way maybe they are right f- for each other you know it, it, it's it's a weird thought to think of all the characters the only one that went home that night and someone was glad to see him and welcoming him to bed was him right however it's interesting we, we've also watched kendall and shiv both dri- being driven away kendall's kind of He's chuckling, you know? He looks like he's kind of like, eh, whatever. I think he's so, in some ways, he's so far gone that, and I I think in a weird way, he's kind of in a position where no matter how things go, I think he can end up in a decent place, you know, one way or the other. Because as far as he knows, you know, if the sale does happen, then boom. Okay, then I'll get the PGN, and then I'll just go up against that. Oh, and if it, and it fails, okay, boom. I'll go whatever. He he he's fine either way. Shiv, on the other hand, she's just totally in like pensive mode because that probably that one two punch probably left her shaken, and then you know, and she still has all the unresolved issues and and the upcoming drama that's going to be going on with Tom as well on top of everything else. So in a way, I think she's the most unsettled of the three. And then you have Roman, who shows up to see Logan. Now, did you have a reaction when he shows up? Was it a reaction of, oh, okay, that makes sense? Or was there, was there at least a little bit of a, ah, oh, or oh? <laughs> you know? uh, I was more intrigued than disappointed, uh, because I think... There are a couple of things he says throughout the episode. Mm -hmm. Uh, He says earlier, he's like, maybe we're tired. I think when Sandy and Stewie shows up, he's like, maybe we're tired and we don't want to cornhole quick cornhole and dad. Like, like he he's, he's also getting tired of the back and forth. Um, And and I don't just see him going to their dad as betrayal. It will be seen by them as betrayal. Right. Uh, But, but I don't, think in his mind he's trying to betray anybody uh i think he's trying to stay in touch with all of them and and what you were talking about about the kids i think shiv's emotions are still the rawest kendall's emotions have have some distance from the things that have happened and i think he's almost enjoying just seeing what happens and and the intrigue of it all but I love, I, I love how the only thing I will say about it is it happened so fast. It was jarring almost that, right. that I did not expect it 
that quick. Right. But when it happened, it didn't bother me. Right. Uh, I actually agree. I, it didn't bother me either. I wasn't disappointed in because, as you say, they they, they pretty much have been um, indicating that Roman still isn't as anti-dad as the other two for the reasons that we've already talked about, so we don't really need to get there. It's interesting how Kendall will br- is the one who will bring up the fact that, you know, Logan hit Roman on, on a, either, or at least one occasion. There was, there was more of a, a perceived abusive relationship between those two than he had with his other kids. And maybe in a weird way that also feeds into Roman being kind of maybe, you know, being in, ha- having that abuse, slightly abused child syndrome, perhaps. Um, Shiv is, as you said, Shiv is the most raw because this is all now. She just got, she felt she just got betrayed now. The Tom situation is happening now and her dad is helping him now. She is going to be the most out for blood. Kendall, this has been baking in for, this has been going on for the last few years of, of this show. Like we said, this has been the situation since early season one. When he, you know, didn't get the chair that he thought he was going to get and everything we've already talked about. Um, but I think Kendall has had such turns between his addiction issues, between the, some of the insane things he might be able to look back upon now and realize some of the stuff he did. <laughs> like that one episode. It, wait, was it his birthday party? <laughs> that, that oh my God, that was bonkers. It's, it's, it's one of the most insane. Like, let's contrast that birthday party to Logan's birthday party. Yeah. <laughs> oh my God. What is, you know, basically, you know, Kendall's birthday party was like a, an escape room on Quaaludes or something. <laughs> but, um, but now he's maybe he's reached a place where he's almost he's not taking he's not taking as many steps back as someone like a Connor, but he's able to take a step back and kind of weirdly enjoy this. It, 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 there's a certain malevolence about him, whereas I think I think Shiv is still operating from the most pain here. Yeah, but yeah, but but Roman they kind of hinted at this already. The way he's been talking about everything from the very first episode that we saw, and even in this episode when they dropped the stuff about the text and the birthday, and they look, oh, there was actually two texts, <laughs> and I'm like, like, you know, that's a that's a great joke gag in this moment, but it's also a little, a very sly little. Again, it's like foreshadowing for what's going to happen later, much like the stuff we said about Connor earlier. And the fact that he does show up there. Oh, and the, there's no carry there. It's just in the other, in the other. I think the was the security dude was there, and he leaves the room, so it just leaves it. He gets to have a private conversation. No witness, no one else there. And it's it's like, oh, we're gonna get the the the, the band back together to go see Matson again, like you did, like you did before, because you know Logan is also being maybe obviously sly here. Because clearly having Roman in the room at Matson is someone that can more easily relate to someone like a Matson because of the age disparity and the way they see the future and tech and everything else. Um, those two kind of can really, uh, you know, vibe with each other more than, than, than Logan could possibly do at Matson. So uh, there obviously a lot of this for Logan is being very pragmatic about it. And once again, offering him, you know, you know, dangling something in front of him. And in this case, I think it's the, if I'm, if I'm remembering correctly, it's ATN. Yeah. Yeah. And he, he invokes not the night of the long knives. Uh, it says yes. that the night of the long knives is coming, which I won't bore you. And we're running a little long, so I won't give you the full history lesson, but basically it's 
when Hitler carried out a series of executions to ensure the brown shirts that another faction within the Nazi party was not gaining favor. Um, so basically, Logan's telling uh, uh, Roman that he's about to get rid of a bunch of people that aren't loyal to him right. or whose loyalty he doubts, and he wants Roman close. So, no, it makes perfect sense. And the only thing I'll end, and I'll end my thinking on the episode with this is the, when we see Roman with Logan and their conversation they have here, and then we can kind of play, uh, do a little movie playback in our mind of multiple scenes between Logan and Roman over the course of the three, well, now four seasons, I guess. Roman is more the epitome of what Connor said than either Kendall or Shiv. Although they both have that quality about them as well, clearly, the difference between them and Roman at the end of the day is the two of them have both built these walls of resentment and anger around that black hole of desperation that they might have. And those walls are fortified by either the perceived rejection or their desired revenge at this point. Roman doesn't have that. And that's why Roman is the one that Logan can still get to and, and, use and perhaps he also maybe we have to admit maybe he does legitimately at least care about him up to a point um or, or he and he does love him you know at least he'll have one of them back so that it was a great episode really uh two super duper strong episodes to start a final season and you know and this is a show that usually ends really well so it's very yeah. encouraging it's very yeah, encouraging yeah. I was not expecting to see Logan and the kids in the same room this episode and was really glad I did. So it was a great episode. Absolutely. So with all that said and such, <laughs> okay, Greg, let us now move on to that other HBO show, which we'll probably spend a little less time talking about, but it doesn't mean it wasn't an excellent episode as well. And we're talking about Perry Mason. And now we're up to chapter 13. I'm so happy they don't give me titles to have to try to remember. So this episode, it opens with a flashback, which is kind of sort of interesting because it's the first of technically two flashbacks we're going to get in this episode regarding the Gallardo family. Um, although this one, I think, takes place a little later than the one we're going to see later in the episode. They do contrast from each other fairly drastically. The one that we open with is fairly bittersweet, but it's a happy memory. Whereas the one that we're going to see later, that one's straight up tragic and even horrific. Both revolve around the site of the about to be built um, McCutcheon Stadium, um, which I think, I, if you correct me if I'm wrong, at this point, that stadium has actually been built at this point. We just haven't seen it on the show. Is that correct? Correct. They have built it. I was pretty sure about that, because how else do you start doing the selling on the baseball team if you don't have the stadium in place already? Okay, so that just tells you, considering, by the way, by the way, like like no one knows this, it's a, you, know, you don't build a stadium in a week or two. It takes a little bit of time. So obviously, you know, X number of years have passed over the course of the show when they're doing this. On to the current timeline, because I don't know if I really want to... I mean, if you want to talk a little bit about the opening, you can, but I'm like, eh, that's just a story. No, the only thing I'll say is I don't remember seeing the, the big the big credits at the beginning of this one the big credits happen um when they when they get out of the first flashback and we see uh the older brother in 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 his prison cell and where we're looking through like the the mesh the gate or uh, not the gate um the the, the, the bars the, the bar well, they're not, well it, it looks almost like a chain like ch like a chain link mesh 
yeah, uh, above yeah. him, and the letters are kind of entangled in that. So you can make some sort of metaphor for that if you like. I don't know. Interesting. I, I must have like looked away in that moment and not saw that. So yeah, it, it, it's the first. It, it, it's one of the only ones I think of the season so far where it is not like a person either. You know, somehow in front of or around some of the letters, whatever. But on to the current timeline, and it's the morning when the trial is about to kick off, and both Della and Perry have clearly spent the previous evening in the arms of you know their new relationships except Della she wants to get cracking on the case you know because it's you know morning of the trial she's trying constantly to call Perry Perry on the other hand would like nothing better than to run off to Yosemite with I'll miss Jenny and ride the horses into the sunset he is truly not just a reluctant hero he is the reluctant defense attorney at least at this point in the episode yeah he he's uh He's reluctant, but he starts to get flashes of inspiration mm-hmm. and has a great, great moment that we'll get to later oh, in, yeah. in the trial. Oh, uh, yeah. I, I'll get there. We do first get to, you know, as, if we're going to do a trial, you know, you, as, as, as our resident lawyer and everyone who's ever seen any law show in their, in their life knows, you got to start with the opening statements. I like that the intercut. The opening statements that we're also watching and, and hearing the Frank Finnerty radio commentary. The fellow who has the articulate and not that slow delivery of a Walter Winchell combined with the skewed bluster of a, of an oldie timey Rush Limbaugh type. And when we get a load of those two opening statements, they go pretty much the way you'd expect they would. Milligan is painting a picture of the Gallardos as these, you know, evil animals who, unlike fellow law-abiding citizens who have gone through these all these hard times but continue to walk the straight and narrow, they resorted to murder of one of the city's most beloved citizens just for a few dollars and a gold coin. Whereas Perry starts to starts to just slightly peel back who McCutcheon might actually be hinting where by the time we get to a point like might be a lot of people might have wanted to kill this guy. Yeah, it's uh, I thought using the radio voiceover was a creative way to play back and forth between Mm -hmm. them. I like that device quite a bit. Oh, yeah, I enjoyed it tremendously. So. We do then cut away from the trial, cut away from the proceedings, as I like to say, and we catch up with our man, Paul Drake, who is attending, I guess it's like a ribbon-cutting ceremony, because there's always tons of ribbon-cutting ceremonies. Oh, by the way, it could have been an opportunity for it to be a ribbon-cutting ceremony for, like, a supermarket, and they could have brought back in Sean Astin's character, because apparently IMDb lied when they told me that he was going to be in every episode, because he was not in the last couple episodes. Liars, IMDb. They do bad lists, and they lie. Anyway, um, he's trying to grab a few words with the somewhat standoffish uh, Councilman Taylor, you know, inquiring about that sister Noreen, you know, the catatonic gal who's back in the nuthouse and whatever. And we get the little... we. I don't know if... Okay, we, we, we don't get actual factual information, I don't believe. I think we... we I, I think Taylor tries to be initially dismissive, you know, saying, you know, a car accident, private family matter. But he's immediately kind of be you know getting not just defensive just being as as threatening as a councilman could possibly be and especially when he knocks and then when he hits a line like that he doesn't like investigators especially shadowy ones and you realize oh you know speaking about words that have double meanings he clearly is hitting that as a double meaning in this moment oh yeah yeah and uh the the uh the information paul gets you wonder if it's true or not if it was a car accident, mm-hmm. uh, but because he says, he says, well, it was a car accident and, you know, and my family's leaving it at that. 
Um, so we're starting to peel back the layers of, of what's going on and how all these people interconnect. Right, right. I am 99 point whatever percent sure that what we discussed a few weeks ago, and I believe, I think you, yeah, I think you beat me to it. Uh, smarty pants over there, lawyer. Uh, it's gonna, it's gonna be involving a belt. I think I saw something. I was like, oh yeah, it's gonna be about the belt. It's gonna be about that. That makes sense. Cause anyway, but check, check off's belt. Yeah. But we'll, we'll get there. But right now we gotta get back to the trial. And now we're up to the first of the witnesses. And it's this bus driver, Brian Walsh. And basically the, the bus driver is brought on, um, to establish where the Gallardos were at, at, at a certain point in time, which would have been coincided with when the murder happened. Um, now, obviously, you can, and again, it being the 1930s, you can more clearly get away with speaking a certain way that you might not be able to 70, 80 years later in court. Um, because clearly the bus driver, whenever he sees these two get on, he's doing the, uh, you know, his own, in the thirties version of racial profiling, you know, he's keep, you know, he's keeping an eye on them, not knowing, you know, what the, you never know what they might get up to there. Um, but I, I really, I, I liked Perry kind of taking him to test because he makes it clear, like, you know, when they got on, got off, but you don't know where they went. But then there's that little 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 stab the driver actually gets on him about you know you, you you wouldn't you wouldn't make those assumptions and he makes that comment about what if unless they're shifty like you mr maggot so right echoing what the way he's been talked about in the press the newspapers probably the radio program as well although i feel like that radio dude might be a bit more might might come up with more colorful language than that i'm not yeah, sure for sure so it, it becomes one of those moments where it's kind of like a Perry wins and Perry loses in the same moment because, yeah, he, he does make the point that the driver doesn't really establish anything that really is concrete as far as a murder is concerned. He also gets undercut himself in the way he's perceived in that courtroom and the laughter that ensues and whatever, which is not the best thing to happen at that moment. It, it's not. And I think the the footnote I'd put there is before – he questions the witness. Della says the jury likes him. Be careful. Like uh, she watched the jury. The jury liked that witness. Yes. Uh, right. And and Perry had what he needed from the witness to say he didn't know where they went, but he kept going and gave the guy the chance to to jab him back. Right. Absolutely. He, he that at this point he pushes a little too far, and that's what happens. Um, and perhaps we can say he maybe he learns from that in his later much far greater moment in court. But what happens here, obviously, and the the that ensuing laughter I reference and so on, that gets the the Gallardo family worried. You know. Mom and Sophia, which leads them to, to reveal the thing about the money that was left for them uh, that they found, you know, underneath the uh, the car and everything that I guess the one of the brothers, when he drew the picture of the car to lead them to it, blah, 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 whatever, to get to the money. And that's where they start to put together the idea that there this was actually maybe a murder for hire situation, that they were being paid for this because it was, and the money was $2,000. Hey, I, I would love $2,000 right now, my friend. But in 19, 1933, $2,000 is a serious piece of change. <laughs> you know, go Google how much that's worth. I'm not about to, but trust me, it's a, it's, it would be like getting definitely five figures. Definitely five figures, I would say. Oh, yeah, for sure. So with all this new information, 
that's when Perry realized, okay, they're going to need more time, whether it be for more investigating. you got to try to connect a few more dots and how you're going to build a case. He is desperate to request a recess. But Hamilton Berger requests it before Perry can even open his mouth. Also, reminding me, wait, Berger's at the table with, what's his face? Is he, is he, is he playing second chair there? I didn't realize he was going to be there. Uh, but it's Berger who does it, right? It's not, it's not Milligan who does it. Um, yeah, it has to be. And why? Why does this happen? Well, we find out when we go back to Berger's office, he is now prepared to offer them a deal. The deal is life with no parole, but it's still a deal, considering, you know, and he, and, he, and he has all these reasons, which all sound very, you know, reasonable and plausible, and yet at the end of the day, why are you doing this, is what Perry is wondering. And you can kind of clearly see Milligan's not into it, the way he's, he's kind of standing. And I, I, correct me if I'm wrong, I think there's a moment where Perry even brings him up, and I think Hamilton or Ham, if we if we want to call him that, you know, the, as as his pals do, um, <laughs> I think Ham is. It, it, correct me if I'm wrong. Is he even slightly dismissive of Milligan or his or what his feelings on the matter don't matter here? Yeah, he he's talking as if he he had not consulted with Milligan at all about this. Right. Well, he is the he is the guy in charge at the end right. of the day. You know, he is his boss at the end of the day. Even though this will make Milligan's career, and you know, he wins this case, he can probably raise his profile and and pr- probably go after Berger's chair. Quite frankly, because Berger himself has probably loftier aspirations as well, as I think they've talked about in previous episodes between him and Della. So this all leads Perry to go see the Gallardos in prison. But can I? Okay, so you can say that. I'm, that sorry, I'm sorry. I go, want to ask you ahead. a question. Sure, 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 sure. Do you think Ham did that because of McCutcheon or because of Taylor? Is it possible Taylor has have reached out to him in between those things? Um, that's interesting. I hadn't thought of it that way. Because Della says, "Who got to him? He he wouldn't look me in the eye," and she she is. You know, she's an authority on his behaviors, and she knew in that room he was off. Um, and I and you can trust her more than Perry because she she knows the man. And it, it makes me think it makes me think it's Taylor because we see the private investigator following Perry and Della mm-hmm. in this episode and gathering information that I think McCutcheon is gathering. I think it's Taylor that that reached out to Berger and said, "Make this go away." Interesting. Uh, just to be contrary, as uh, some former co- podcast co-hosts used to be, um, because I don't got a, I don't got a dog in this hunt or whatever that phrase is. That's not the phrase. Race? Dog in the race? Dog in the whatever. Um, dog in this fight. Dog in this fight. Wow, 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 wow. Someone's going to make fun of me for that one. Um, I'm going to go the other direction. Um, regardless of whether uh, that McCutcheon might have men following uh, Perry and Della, whatever, which he very well probably, which I think he would be doing regardless, because he's clearly someone from the get-go we've seen is keeping tabs and is fully aware of what Mason, who he was, who he is, and what he's doing. Um, I think he just wields more power than a councilman does. Keep in mind, this councilman, as if I'm recalling, they were saying he's the brother of the woman there so he's kind of you know if the woman that's in if, if if noreen is a victim he is a brother of the victim 
we're we're going on the assumption that the person who put her there in one way or another, and we're going on the uh, that belt was involved, Tihi, um, was McCutcheon. He's more invested in making this all go away. Taylor is because maybe by going along with this, that that's helped fortify his political position. Maybe they they there was kind of a quid pro quo, and that's kind of helped him get to where he is. You know, he's a he's a councilman. Let's not give him you know all all all, all the um, he's not a congressman. Let's put it that way. Um, but still, it's still the beginning. Of, so I just I I just feel who's going to have an influence on the the DA of Los Angeles. I'm gonna go with the the oil baron more than the councilman. Now, could it still be the, what you said? Of course it could be. Of course it could be. You know, it's still maybe if they have a, a political affiliation with each other and you want whatever, and maybe there's a lot more there's a lot more strands to be unraveled that we don't know about yet. Of course. At this point, I, I'm gonna go with that one, and maybe it's because of the knowledge that maybe because here's what I would say. I would say it's more, in my mind, it would be more likely that Taylor would say something to McCutcheon about this, that, okay, they, now they know that my connection, they're coming to me, they're sending, they're sending their PI, and he probably said something much more derisive than that, which I won't say, um, to speak to me. He might say that you, you need to know about this, you need to make this go away, because it's not going to be good for either one of us. And that would lead McCutcheon to be the one who goes to uh, Hamilton and says, you, you know, if, if, it, if it means just making this, we need to make this case go away, even if it means they don't, they don't get the death penalty after all. That is just my guess. Again, I'm, I could be totally wrong, but it's a, it's a really interesting idea either way, um, especially because we, we, I, I think, at least I do, I, I'll speak for, I can only speak for myself. I really l- am enjoying the Hamilton Burger character because he's set up as the, if, if nothing else, he's almost like the likable antagonist. It's like, yeah. cause he's kind of, he is, but he isn't because he, he clearly has respect and like, he clearly, you know, is buddies with Della to, to no end because they, they both help each other out in the, in the ways we already know. But I think there's a weird sort of, respect between him and Perry. And there's that thing he says later, um, which is right where I was getting to, um, but I'll just skip to it right now. When, you know, when the deal is turned down and Milligan is obviously pleased with that because he didn't want them to offer a deal anyway. But Ham is talking Perry up about how he's, you know, the speed with which he was able to deal with passing the bar and all that stuff. And finally saying he's a lot craftier than you think. And I loved hearing that because it's like, okay, I'm hoping that means at some point, maybe in this very episode, and it turned out to be this very episode, we're going to get a good old fashioned Perry Mason kind of moment where he's going to, he's going to win, win a major point in this trial, whatever. It's too early in the episode to make someone admit they killed somebody on the stand. And then, and, and probably he's still somehow the guy Yard is still in that of doing. It. I'm still confused by that. But, um, <laughs> I'm sorry. It, it's such an interesting idea. It's like, wait, but they, but they did it. Okay. Um, but, uh, but it's an, it, but someone like Hamilton being gotten to, but it's a way in which, he got, he got to, but it's not something which he, he, he can't really change it beyond this. He can offer them the deal. They turn it down. There's not much else he can do at this point. Right. So he, he's a benign actor of, of the powers that be. Right. So 
the thing I was where I was going to go before is after um, uh, Perry finds out about the money and the potential murder for hire. That's what leads him to go back to see the Gallardos, and and that's what eventually gets us to what I call the second flashback, where we see there where they used to live, and we realize this is this is at least some time before what we saw in the very beginning of the episode, but. Literally, police are trashing their farm while breaking down the doors, burning down the property to make way to build that stadium. And in the midst of it all, their little sister dies in the fire, which is... I I don't know if we knew about that before. I don't think we did, because I was kind of like, wow, that's... Even though we didn't, you know, see it. Okay, they killed a kid. And I realized, wait, what's with Perry Mason? Is every season they're going to be killing kids? It was like, what is this, Walking Dead? <laughs> did, did, Walt, did Walt, is Walter White writing a script here? He's like, hey, you got to kill some more kids here. You know, <laughs> That's what all these prestige shows we watch, and they all kill kids. They kill, they kill any kids on Mad Men, goddammit. Anyway, wait, did they? No, I don't think so. <laughs> no, they just gave him away instead. So anyway... <laughs> Uh, let, let's get to, uh, to Drake, Paul Drake, that is. And when he finds out that, um, who was, someone was involved in this murder for hire and someone by the name of Ozzy Jackson, uh, who then he realizes probably more of a middleman. And one thing I love, I love the idea. The one thing he's known for, you know, how to spot him anywhere is that he tends to wear Converse sneakers. (laughs) I was like, okay, Converse sneakers, you know, I don't think they probably weren't. It's probably too early for them to be Chuck Taylors, but I love the fact that they're. Oh no, my friend! Oh, what year was Chuck Taylor? I did a deep dive. Oh, look at you! And in 1916, Converse introduced its basketball shoes, and in 1917, Chuck Taylors debuted. Oh my God! I did not. So, so Chuck. Wait, okay, okay. I gotta ask. Okay, I'm totally derailing. I don't care. I need to know now. I need to know. I needs to know. So, Chuck Taylor. I assumed I assumed that Chuck Taylor was actually the name of of an athlete that they named the sneaker after, or am I just so you know maybe I shouldn't because you know Air, Air Jordans didn't happen till the mid eighties as this upcoming movie is going to tell us all about. You know, I don't know if someone seventy years earlier said, "I don't know, we can name a sneaker after a current athlete," but I never looked up. Wait, who is Chuck Taylor? Or was he just a designer? <laughs> um, Chuck Taylor was a person who he was an American basketball player and later became a basketball shoe salesman. And he asked specifically Converse to design a better basketball shoe than the one they initially created. And that's how we got Chuck Taylor's. See, this should be the proudest moment of this podcast. So that anyone listening, cause you know what? I didn't really care much for their TV talk. They ramble, they talk too much, but you know what? I learned about Chuck Taylors, and I never knew that. And I had a pair when I was a kid. Next week, we're, we're going to be talking about Doc Martens. Anyway, so, <laughs> so, um, so later on, when Drake, with that little bit of information, Drake uh, is talking to his brother-in-law, Mo, 
um, who knows who Ozzy Jackson is. After after a little repartee between them, which is a little there's a little bit of tension there, and Drake makes it clear it's like hey, we're going to move out soon when things are and, and the brother kind of backpedals just a little bit, but there you do get the feeling there is a little bit of tension of everyone being under the same roof at this point. But he gives him the information that this Ozzy Jackson character he's actually part of the Perkins crew. Ah, we bring it back to the Perkins thing. I see. I I, I love it when the storylines start to start to connect to, together. And then we have Drake actually meeting with Perkins later on. And he uses those photos, because he still has them, as part of this, let's call it like a fair trade deal <laughs> with Perkins. If Perkins helps him, you know, connect with and find Jackson. He'll help him find whoever this was who was taking these pictures. You know, this Mr. Snaps. Was, <laughs> and I'm like going, that's a dangerous game you're playing, man. <laughs> <laughs> it is. It's a gutsy game, and I was I was curious how Paul was going to work his way out of it, uh, but, but and eventually he does, but he pays a heavy price. Oh man! Oh man! Does he ever? So I do love it. Okay, it, it, it's a it's a hard thing to write because you always are going to feel like this feels really um, contrived. That's 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 the word I always when whenever you have to have a moment where a character has. Either it's a, a mild epiphany, or they suddenly realize something, they suddenly see something, and we've seen it a billion times where it's, you know, it's someone just looking at something just, just a little bit more closely, or whatever, and here. And they kind of play into that a little bit here with the the fingerprint that Perry sees. And I love the idea of him looking, I mean, it's, again, it's a little bit, not control, this is more a bit, not subtle, but no, literally looking through the bottom of a drinking glass, you know, a, sh- a something that looks approximately as a shot glass, quite frankly, or, or something like definitely a glass for, for boozing. Um, but he sees something about that photo, which catches his eye. And then we get, which leads to the courtroom scene about the fingerprint. And we've got um, the prosecution has the, 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 at that time, as close as you could get to a fingerprint expert, Right. You know, because we, we are getting to an era of time of when did fingerprints start to become a thing and, and the analysis, you know, we're, we're kind of getting there. there. I don't think, I, I remember, I've, I've read about this before, about when that became a much bigger thing and there was still, you know, we're, 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 they were getting there. But the fact that they, at this point in time, it's still a new thing to people that you have to explain that, you know, the whole like fingerprints are like snowflakes kind of a thing that no two can be the same and all that kind of thing for people. Um, now, both I and pro- I know a, a handful of our listeners because we have the same work background, but especially speaking for myself, um, working in a stock photo archive since I was a te- when I was a teenager through my twenties, thirties, and forties. Um, but I spent the first several years of my life working with a lot of old negatives, and there's one thing I knew because we would. F- we, we had a dark room and we had them processed and done all the time, you know, hundreds, thousands, and everything, every historical photo you can imagine. And sometimes the older photos, the older negatives, the ones that were especially from the 1920s, 30s, a little bit in the 40s too, I think. I don't know if we really, I think in the 50s we might have stopped doing it, but definitely in those earlier decades, they would tend to write on the negative. Sometimes it might be with, you know, a little China marker, whatever it would be. And you would see that in, in the edge of a photo. Now, usually you tried to remove that or it got, would get cropped out or, or not. You'll also see this a lot when you see, um, the only thing that people might see it now, um, 
if you're going to go look to f- buy a an old-timey promotional photo from a movie, from, I don't know, like a, maybe a still from, I don't know, Bringing Up Baby or something, or It Happened One Night. I don't know why one of those two, but they're two very good movies. Um, you might, might, might see in the corner, you might see some numbers. You might see a date. You might see a, you might see something which approximates a, a negative number that was done by whatever stock has, whatever like that. The reason I'm saying it is because when Perry's say, seeing that, that's so absolutely correct for what they did back then. I love that little detail because I think that's that's absolutely accurate. Either you were taking it as a news photo for a newspaper or even just cataloging it for, you know, the police department or whatever, you would absolutely write that on the negative. And if you printed it and you reverse it, that is what would happen. It's a great catch. I I, I when when I realized what was happening, I was like, oh, I I can't believe I'm I'm, to, I'm totally relating to this, this little evidence turn here. Yeah, I, I thought it was a real creative uh, way to that he had an epiphany and then was able to show it and explain it to the jury uh, because it, it's something you don't think about every day that your fingerprint, if you leave it, is not as you see it. It is when you leave it, it's the reverse of what you see it. Um, so if the fingerprint appeared perfect in the picture, it should not have been, it would have had to have been reversed. Right. Um, and the, the demonstration he does to get the expert to say, like, there's no possible way you could leave your fingerprint as it exists on your finger on the steering wheel, it would have to have been transferred. You know, that's the first moment where you get the, you know, old time movie thing that doesn't happen now or people go to jail as you get the murmuring in the courtroom, you know, people go, Oh, and, <laughs> and, and even of course, and, and, and classic, you know, in classic TV movie, whatever you want to call it lawyer style. Cause I don't know if you, and, and maybe occasionally in real life, but maybe not as much anymore. Perry deliberately dropping that line that, you know, they're going to, they're going to raise objection and you know, the judge is going to go, you know, the, the jury will, will disregard that last comment. Like, doesn't matter. They heard it. They heard him say, because clearly, you could. If this wasn't a trial, you don't need to say, "Well, who would have? Who could have possibly done that? I mean, who holds the photos? Who did? Well, that's the police. That's who, right. You know, but right. you can't. But so I, I love him. Like, well, you got, you got, you're gonna have to say because now it's in their head. And if you had to do that, then why, How do we? How do we trust other things? You know, right. the old thing, if you can't trust this piece of evidence that they, that they, because they screwed around with it, how can you trust anything else that they say? It's a very, it, again, it's, it's a great thing. It's him being crafty, just yes. like Ham said. There you go. Thank you, Ham. Yeah. Case closed. Anyway. Uh, well, it, it's, it's the idea that, and I think where, where that, what this proves in the trial is that even with a guilty client, uh, in the desperation to prove somebody guilty, if you can prove that you've attempted to frame somebody or done something, that may undo the fact that you have a lot of other good evidence. If you're the state um, and if you're caught cheating and that's held against you, that puts the state's case in jeopardy. And, uh, you know, as a lawyer, have I ever done something similar to or said something similar to Perry knowing it was going to be objected to? Oh no, Scott! I've never done anything oh. like that ever. Oh, you're, so, you're such you're such you're, you're such a you're 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 you're, you're Atticus. You're Atticus. That's you. <laughs> you're Atticus, and I'm Attica. Okay, so I can I like the fact that I can actually speed through a little bit here because we we start the episode kind of with it's 
the morning, the morning of, before everything. And now, now at this point in the episode, as we're getting, we're getting closer towards the end of the episode, it's, it's the evening after. And again, and they're in a much different place now. So you have the Della and Anita stuff where they end up in like what apparently looks like a lesbian hotspot, but it's very, it's a really darling little moment between them because they're recounting something that one of them said sort of maybe in their sleep, but maybe not. Who knows? But the, the dropping the, Oh, I almost forgot. I love you too. It's like, Oh, she's a, yeah. she is a screenwriter. Cause that's like a little line you do. And you want to, when you stupid little skits, you know, we're in a lawyer privacy that, uh, anyway. Uh, William Powell. Anyway. And then we also get a little Jenny Perry sweetness moment where he shows up at her place. And the great line there in my mind is when the little, it's very noirish. Uh, I love the, is there anything you don't do? Small talk. Oh, um, right. How did, how did, how did teacher get so cool? I mean, how'd she become Barbara Stanwyck in just five seconds? I didn't know how that happened. Unlike his two partners for the defense. Right, exactly. Drake does not have quite as pleasant an evening. <laughs> he apparently gets a call because we hear him questioning, you know, kind of like, how did you get my number? How did you, how did you, you know, and he leaves to, as we see seconds later, he leaves to go see Perkins. And they've caught Ozzy Jackson. And that's when we have the, where he decides, cause he's Paul to, cause he, the guy's like, okay, before we let you do anything or get any information on him, we want to know about who took the photos. It's like, uh, it's me. <laughs> you know? yeah. And it's a fascinating scene. It's like, okay. And they basically, let's see what you're made of and what you'll do. And they have him, he's basically forced to beat the man for information. Um, he does actually get some pertinent information, you know, some fancy cracker with a hop head for a wife who used to paid him. I think they said they paid him to stop dealing to her or whatever. Yes. Um, and then you start thinking of who that might be, whatever. But, and then you realize, and he, and he thinks he's gotten all the information. It's that moment he thinks he's got all the information he needs that he's going to get out of him. And Perkins is like, I don't think you did. Right. And he, and you realize he has to continue to beat him. And they, that's when they finally move away. And you can hear, you can even hear the fist blows actually landing faster or, or hard or whatever. And you're like, like, Oh, dear God. Yeah. So it, it's, it's an interesting scene to be horrified on behalf of the person who has to do the hitting. That's something we don't get to see very often. It's usually the other way around. Although I have seen it, but it's, it's, it's rare. And it, it, it culminates in this moment when he gets home and he gets into, gets into bed with his wife, Clara, who's, you know, the, they're, it's like I like the fact that they're they're both soul consciences for each other. Yes, but there's that sentence he says, or sentence, yeah. Well, it is a sentence, so I guess that's grammatically correct. Am I good? And I re- again, it's kind of like what we were saying about the "you're not serious people" when we were having the conversation about the the other series that I hope you all watch. Whatever. Um, I love simple lines that have that mean so much more. Those are those are the, always the best lines to me. Am I, cause we're, cause c- considering who we've seen on this series, dude, you are the most good of yeah, anyone absolutely. on this series. More, more, more than Perry and Della, you know, and everybody and certainly everybody else that we've encountered. And the fact that you, the most more, perhaps the most moral and ethical person on the show, on the series is questioning himself is really striking. And again, as we've said before, 
it's on her to kind of like guide him and be like, right. you know, you because know, she's not gonna have a scene where she's gonna like, you know, you know, come on, wake up. Of course, he was like, no, I, I like even though they're just, even though she's kind of probably half asleep and whatever, she still says and does just enough to kind of like just, even though we do, I think we linger on and his, his eyes being open in a way where he's still replaying what he just did and how yeah. this is gonna leave him, you know. Maybe not as much of a mark as he left on the dude, but it's going to leave a mark on him. Oh yeah, yeah, and uh, the 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 choice they make uh, is that in this case, as difficult as it's been so far in everything that's happened this year, I think Paul Drake's had to pay the most. I mean, you think about what he did for the police; and he kind of got hoodwinked. Perry left him hanging. He's been brought back in. He found the gun, had to make a tough choice. Uh, you know, he found this out, had to pay this price. I mean, he's really been through the ringer yeah, of all of them. Definitely. I, I would I would pretty much have to agree with that. The only, um, you know, Perry getting hit with what happened with Dodson after the fact is probably what had the most, you know, serious impact on him. But Drake and the way his life has been impacted so much, I mean – yeah, Perry had a move out of off the farm, but uh, you yeah, know, whatever. Uh, we we get to we get to the final few strokes of this episode, and one of the in the first one we get, we get to see Strickland and Milligan together. I think we did see Strickland briefly earlier in the episode, just you know watching, and the basic conversation between them is Milligan asking him about how well he knows Mason, and about whether the two of them talk shop. We know what that means. And when, you know, Strickland indicates, you know, they have from time to time or they used to, whatever, shut the door. Yeah. And it's going to be very interesting to see how that plays out because, you know, ultimately, which way does Strickland go? Strickland is a wild card here. You can't be, I can't, we cannot assume one way or the other. No, you can't. Because he's, we, we've like, we've generally speaking, we very much have liked him as a character, but, you know, Who's he going to put first? Remember the scene he had with Perry in a previous episode. You know, you know, does he do something which could pretty much damage his working life from this point on if he goes against what Milligan is going to ask him to do? It's it's very it, it's very interesting. I'm, I'm right now. It's probably the thing I'm most other than who's that shadowy figure and who and what and who are they working on behalf of and all that stuff, which is a, you know, the, the classic mystery kind of moment. This to me is the most intriguing thing going into the next week for me. It's like, okay, I'm curious where they're going to go with the Strickland uh, thing. I, I have a feeling that Milligan's going to ask Strickland to float something to Perry. That's, that is the wrong thing to do or the wrong thing to say. Like maybe give him bad information about a witness, so he ends up tanking a cross examination or something. And it could be something that he can get away with doing that he it won't appear that he did it deliberately. Yes, exactly. I, I think that would be because because he's quite frankly he's already done the reverse. He's already given Perry a few little heads ups on things, even though he wasn't he felt like he wasn't supposed to, but he he did anyway. So in a way, Strickland could probably do that in in his own mind, kind of um, evening the score, so to speak. Okay, I did this, and I probably shouldn't have, but if I do this, you know, it's it it's the Jimmy McGill way of rationalizing behavior. Right. <laughs> well, I mean, in 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 the middle of trial, in the middle of trial, somebody tells you something you don't know, or says like this is coming. Your, your instinct's going to be to prepare for it and worry about it. Right, 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 right. Absolutely. Last two things about the episode. 
Della coming home and we, we see the poor forgotten Hazel, which made me kind of think, you know, kind of giving, kind of gi- giving Della a pass all this season. Uh, it's an explicit podcast. I can talk, I can talk the way I want to talk. She's been kind of shitty to this person this whole fucking time. Oh yeah. Big it's time. Kind of, you know, and, and as we see, it's not like Hazel is this, you know, bad, annoying, horrible, whatever. It's like, no, she's, she's might not be as exciting because she's not, you know, because Anita is part of the Hollywood life at this point, even though she has to live a certain way, but look where she gets to go. Look what she gets to do, who she works with. She's still in the Hollywood scene, whatever. There's something she, she's very funny and exciting, whatever, maybe, and maybe Hazel isn't quite that, but give Hazel credit when, you know, she even gives Della the chance to be honest about things, and she's not. And Hazel knows full well she's lying, and that's when she calls her a fucking coward. And I, yeah. and I have to admit, I, I there was a little piece of me that kind of cheers, like yeah, kind of is, you know. Like, yeah. Just you can, you know what? Just end things with her. You clearly, if that's you, you know, don't. I, I look. I, I'm I'm not parochial or whatever the word is or you know whatever. But whenever you have characters in all the shows that we've watched over the last 25 years and they're, either they're married and they're, they're adult and they commit adultery constantly or they're not, but they're just cheating, whatever with very few exceptions. Cause there's always a few can't help but think, and it could be the person we're, we're rooting for. Now it's like, just end things with the other person already. Why do you do that? And you know, it just, it always bothered me. I mean, we, even I've even known people in real life over the years. I'm always like, oh, why are you doing that? Just, and just whatever. Cause the potential damage you might do. And this is damage that Della might've done here with Hazel. Um, but you know, may, I'm, I'm wondering if that's going to be it for them. I guess we'll see. No, I, I, I agree with you. I mean, I my sympathies were with Hazel in that moment. And as you said, I think we've kind of, because they haven't brought Hazel into the forefront, we've kind of had that on the back burner and not had to face it right. until that moment. But in that moment, it suddenly all came back. Like, think of all the nights she's been gone, all the lies she's had a to weekend, tell. Like a going weekend away she's weekend. been gone? Yeah. Again, and it all it all kind of goes away if she's honest there and just deals with it. And when she's not, any sympathy or preference I would have had for Della in that moment goes out the window. It's like, no, because she, she clearly knows you're, you're not. You're not because in this. And if you and if you who have been so perceptive before aren't picking up on that, and that you you lying again here. Because remember, whenever you have these situations in relationships, it's always the lie that's the bigger deal. It's always the lie. It's you know, it happens again. Anyway, let's want to get to the last scene so we can wrap up because I thought it was a beautiful little way they did it. Perry comes home himself, and he and he hears that sound in the other room, and and we're waiting. And I loved it because I kept thinking, who's going to be sitting there? Someone's sitting there. Nobody's sitting there, but the train is running. And I love oh, yeah. it. I love it's just running in that you know it's just that pure circular tracks just running around. And there's that cigarette that's been that's lit and smoking there, which means whoever was there, they couldn't have been there that long ago, right? And I was going, that's and I, and I love it because all the cliche things, you know, the house wasn't torn apart or anything like that. Whatever, someone just wanted to put it there. It's like someone can get to you, and they were there, and they gave you they gave you a break, but they probably knew you were the, you were. I really thought that was a very kind of ooh interesting little moment there. 
to yeah, and that and that thing in the middle of the tracks is very reminiscent of the oil well from the McCutcheon. Oh yeah, oh yeah. I thought of it like a watchtower from a concentration. Anyway, um, so yeah, and that was and that was actually the episode. And then I think the the, the image with the final credits was was it a burning pair of ch- a child shoes representing the Gallardo uh, daughter? Is that what that was supposed to be? I'm, I'm assuming. It, it. I didn't know if it was that or if it was Ozzy Jackson was dead and they were burning his shoes. Um, they didn't look like Chuck Taylors to me. But they, they didn't either, but I don't know what they looked like at that time. Yeah, they looked. I, I thought. It was, I thought it was a child's shoes, so I thought it, it represented. But it could be the Chuck Taylors. It could be. But Although, you know, since she died in a fire, I yeah, think their that, idea I, makes more sense. I wasn't. Yeah, I wasn't on the impression they were going to kill Jackson. I thought they were just going to beat him up some. So, already then. All right, so we made up for it with the. <laughs> hey, we're done. So, if you enjoyed. This podcast, guess what? You'll ha- you'll enjoy hanging out on our Facebook page as well. It's the Serious TV Drama Podcast page. Like the page and join the conversation about shows like Perry Mason, like Succession, and so many more. Um, where can you find us? You can find us on most major podcast platforms. The two I like to point out always are Apple Podcasts, because I love when people can rate and review us there. And as far as everything else, you can go to simply podbean.com. You can punch in serious TV drama. Guess what? You can just punch in STVD. That works. And that works on the Apple Podcast, too. It's amazing. And voila. But on Podbean, you'll be able to access all 374 of our podcasts. We've got about 24 that are actually good. 25, maybe? I don't know. Maybe maybe tonight's number 25. Oh, and by the way, because I have to self-promote, you can also find my other podcasting project, Extraordinaire, there as well. And, and also on other platforms, Scott forgot the 80s. Just remember, Scott begins with, begins with one T. Wow. Has one T. Oh, my God. To Scott. Anyway, back to STVD. You can follow us on Instagram. Serious TV drama is the word there. And on Twitter, our handle is at STVD podcast. Again, STVD as in serious TV drama. We will be back next week with the next episodes of both Succession and Perry Mason. Brian, I think this was one of our stronger efforts. I'm very proud of this one. Unlike last week, which I think we sucked. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> and of course, it's it's largely due to your presence. So I thank you for, for joining me once again. Well, in the words of Connor Roy, <laughs> look, look, look who's back, the Rebel Alliance. So uh, we'll see you next week. All right. Thanks to you. Thanks to you. Thanks to everybody. Good night, everybody. Mm-hmm.